God, we believe in you. We believe in those magnificent truths about you that have been believed and spoken and preached and lived for generations and generations. And today we believe those things. We bank our lives on them. God, we cling to them for our hope and for our health. And God, I pray that as we um, come before your word, um, God, that you would come and meet us. God, come and meet us in your word. Come and meet us as, as I preach. God, I pray that um, it would sink deep into our hearts, the truths that we hear. Um, God, we pray for other churches around Richmond Hill, other churches around Savannah, that you would fill them with your spirit, that they would preach your gospel, that they would not err from your word, but that they would um, proclaim forth your truth um, boldly and fully. God, um, we thank you for our veterans and those who are serving right now and those who have served. God, we pray that you would bless them. We gotta pray for a revival within our armed forces, God, that uh, men and women um, from the generals all the way down would... Um, God, would come and uh, know you, love you, um, be able to seek your face, God. Uh, we love you. Face things in your name. Amen. All right. I don't know what's going on there, but you'll have a seat. Um, all right. Can y'all hear me? Are we good? All right. Perfect. Welcome. My name's Coleman, as I already said. Uh, so glad y'all are here. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn me to Acts 8. Um, and there we go. Uh, such a joy to be here with you today. Um, Andrew can't be here today. He, uh, he lost his grandfather on Friday, uh, and so I'm going to just be praying for him. Um, but it was a, a, a rejoicing in the losing. Um, he was a man that walked with Jesus for a long time. Andrew actually uh, found a Bible, his grandfather's Bible, um, from, I forgot when it was, it was 50 or 60 years ago, um, where he wrote about his conversion, um, his coming to know Jesus, and his, the man just lived a faithful life. And really pass that on uh, to Andrew as well. So to rejoice and be praying for him and his family. Uh, he's doing the funeral today, and that's always an emotional thing. So I'm so thankful you all are here with me today. We're going to read uh, in Acts. So we're in Acts 8. And for those of you that aren't familiar with our church, we go through books of the Bible. Um, and so we're in the book of Acts. We've been looking at kind of the birth of the church after Christ rose again. Um, and, so, and so we're coming into Acts 8. And let's start in verse 4. And I'm just going to read the whole thing for us. So if you don't have it, pull it up on your phone, pull it up in a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you after service, grab one from the table out there. You can take it home with you. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. Acts 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon. He had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, 
so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they testified and spoke in the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. So what we have here is we have the gospel going forth, and, and it has stayed in Jerusalem at this point. I mean, Acts 1.8, uh, Jesus, Andrew kind of pointed that out to the thesis statement of the book of Acts. Jesus said, remain in Jerusalem, and I will send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes upon you, he will give you power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in what? Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But what happened was, is the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't go out to Judea and Samaria. They stayed where they were, and they saw great fruit from the gospel. But, but they weren't really obeying what Christ had told them to do, but God changes that. Sovereignly, through the persecution and martyrdom of Stephen, what happens in Jerusalem is that what, what we think is the Greek-speaking Jews just began persecuting the church over and over and over again. There was a huge pressure, and so they had to scatter. So they left Jerusalem, fleeing for their lives, and went into Judea and Samaria. It's basically fulfilling what God had told them what happened, that they weren't doing on their own, but God sent them out to Judea and Samaria. And what happens, if you look in verse 4, it says they went about preaching the word. And that phrase, preaching the word, is not like me up here on a Sunday or a man on a street corner. That is just sharing the gospel. As they went, there were refugees Imagine the Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine into Poland, and as they're going, they're just sharing the gospel. They're just talking about what Christ has done for them. That's the image we get here. And what they're doing is they're doing exactly what Christ had called his disciples to do in Matthew 28. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And that word, some of you know, is as you go. Going, go. As you go. As you go about your life and your day and your work and your play, share the gospel. Make disciples. And that's what's happening is this church is scattered throughout Samaria. And that word scattered is interesting. So you look in verse 4. Now, those who are scattered, there's two Greek words for scattered. Um, one is uh, ritzo, and it's, it's basically to scatter ashes, okay? To scatter something to make it disappear. The purpose of it, so when we build a fire tonight in my fireplace, because it's finally winter, praise God, right? Um, and we built a fire back in uh, September, because we've never had a fireplace. And it was like 63 degrees. It's like, we're going to make a fire. And it was during the hurricane. It was that September, and, and the gusts were blowing, and, and all the smoke, the gusts blew the smoke down our chimney into our house. Our house was filled with smoke. So anyway, it was a disaster. But tonight, we're building a fire. And after the fire, I'm going to scoop the ashes out. I'm going to scatter them out over my yard, okay? And the goal in that is that they disappear. I don't want to see those ashes again, right? There's another word um, called diaspero, which is to scatter like seed. And the goal of that scattering is to scatter it to make it grow up, to scatter to multiply, right? And that's the word Luke uses here. And though the persecution, the goal of the persecution was that they would be scattered to disappear, what God did is, is, the, is the church is scattered so that they multiply. And what I want to kind of bring, this is not the sermon, but I just want to say this. This is what we mean when we say go and be the church every Sunday. And we're going to keep saying that, go and be the church. Is we're saying we don't want to be a church that comes together and it's visible on Sunday mornings and invisible for the rest of the time. We don't want you going out and scattering and disappearing into the world and you can't tell you apart from anyone else. We want to be seed of the gospel that is sown again and again into the soil of our lives, whether it's your neighborhood, your workplace, the gym, the grocery store, your family. We want to keep laying down our lives as seed that God might bear much fruit 
through our lives. And that's what's happening here in the church. They're scattered and bearing fruit all throughout Judea and Samaria. So we come to Samaria. And Samaria, Christ has been here before. It was the woman at the well. I read the passage earlier in John 4 where he met with the woman at the well. She comes to know Christ. She goes off and brings a bunch of people from her town. This is the same place, okay? And we have a man named Simon there, and he's a magician. And what you need to know about Samaria is during one of the exiles or a couple of the exiles, the Babylonian exile, what they did was they took all of the wealthy and important people out of Samaria, and they spread them out over their kingdom and then they brought in all these pagans. So you had the lower class Jews and these pagans. This was 500 years before Christ. And they began to intermarry and develop basically a syncretistic society that had both pagan beliefs and Jewish beliefs. And so what you ended up with is you ended up with people like the woman at the well that was waiting on the Messiah. And then you end up with people like Simon the Magician that's practicing demonic power and is gathering a following. And if any of you know anything about missions in Africa um, or India or South America and these um, places where the gospel hasn't reached, there's, there are these witch doctors that basically control a town and they use real demonic power. And what happens when the gospel comes in is that the gospel has to show a greater power. So although we're not seeing many signs and wonders here, and maybe we need to pray more for them, in those places, um, those groundbreaking places of the gospel, you're seeing signs and wonders, you're seeing healings, and really God's power is showing that that's the great power, that's the amazing power. And that's what happens here in Samaria, is that God's power just trumps Simon's power, right? And unfortunately, that word is back in the culture again, trumps. But, um, but, but the power of the gospel comes in and, and, and overcomes Simon, and Simon comes to know Christ. And so we're going to talk about Simon this whole time. And, and Simon may not feel very relevant to you. Um, I hope none of you are active in witchcraft. Um, but uh, but he, he's got something for us today when we look at his story. So my question is, think, think about Simon. What was Simon's problem? Because what happens is he looks good on the outside. And then Peter comes in and he gives him about a firm rebuke as you can get. Right? So Simon asked to pay for the power of God. And instead of Peter kind of pulling to the side and saying, dude, you don't say that here. Like, you can't pay for the Holy Spirit's power. Like, just shh. This is what you needed to say instead. Like, he doesn't pull him aside and coach him. He literally, like, lays into him immediately. And he says, you don't have part or lot in this. He says, may your silver perish with you. Um, one of the translators said that's mild. It's basically, may you and your silver go to there. And it's like, he's, like, firmly laying into him. He says, you, basically, you aren't a Christian. You have neither part or light. You're lot in this matter. Your heart's not right before God. You need to repent. You're in bitterness and the bond of iniquity. I mean, that is harsh, right? So if any of y'all are in sin, that's what Andrew and I are going to do to you, right? We're going to call you out in front of the church like that, right? But, but Peter does this. Why? Simon's got a problem. What was Simon's problem? Simon's problem, the problem with Simon um, is the problem with Simon's heart, right? So the heart of Simon's problem is the problem with Simon's heart. The intent of his heart, look at verse 22, the intent of your heart needs to be forgiven. Simon's problem was his heart. The motivation, like the taproot of his motivation was off. It was wrong. And the Holy Spirit gave Peter a view into it, and he saw it, and he called him out because of it. So what we're going to do together this morning is we're going to look at Simon's wayward heart. We're going we're to dive into it and see what happened in Simon's story. And hopefully when we look at his heart, we're going to be able to see our own. See, what do I do with a wayward heart? What do I do when my intent gets off track? What do I do when the taproot of my motivation is no longer to love God? to please God, to, to worship God, that Christ would be magnified in my life, but the taproot of my motivation becomes the love of some other thing in this world. And men, um, you're not exempt from this sermon. So you just heard me, I'm going to talk about the heart, okay? I'm not talking about emotions, right? Some of you are like, well, I don't have a heart. I don't have emotions. I'm going to fill out the thing in my life, right? 
I'm not talking about feelings. I'm talking about intent, like motivation. Why do you do what you do? Why are you here this morning? Why do you come here every week? Why do you work? Why do you work over? Why do you not work? Why do you spend time with your family? Why do you not spend time with your family? Why do you drink? Why do you not drink? Why do you do the things you do with your free time? Why do you have a boat? Why do you not have a boat? Like what, down to the core of everything you do, what is the motivation? What is the driver in your life? We're going to look at Simon, and hopefully in seeing Simon, we're going to see ourselves. So the first thing we're going to see, we're going to walk through his story. So the first step in his story is apparent faith. So if you look at verses 9 through 13, things look pretty good right? Simon has this radical conversion. And, and this isn't like a, a small town, like he gets baptized on Sunday and people are like, who's he? Like, this is the man in this town. Everyone knows he's been leading. He has this following behind him. Everyone's been following him. And all of a sudden he has a conversion. He gets him in front of the whole city. It seems that the whole city comes to know Christ. He gets him in front and he denounces his magic. He says that he was wrong and he gets baptized. Like, this is a big deal. And then he continues on in the church. And when Peter and John come down, they see Simon. He's there. He's part of the church gathering. This man has an apparent faith. And you know Philip would have interviewed him, right? Like Philip would have been like, there is no way this is true. And he would have roasted him. He would have asked him questions. He would have made sure his testimony was legit. And from all intents and purposes, Simon looked like a genuine believer. He looked like someone that had really come to know Christ. The problem was is he wasn't. What we learn from church history, and we even see at the end of this passage, is that Simon actually ends up becoming a huge heretic. He ends up turning away from the Lord and leading a bunch of others after him. He's one of the leaders in the Gnostic movement. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's basically this Christian movement that combined spiritual power and magic with Christianity and came up with this weird form of Christianity that led a lot of people astray. So Simon did not have a true heart for the Lord. Um, he fell away. And the question was, was, was Philip wrong in baptizing Simon? Should Philip have seen that? Should Philip have withheld baptism and not joined him in the church? Should, should he have seen Simon's heart? 1 Samuel 16, 7, um, when uh, Samuel is going, God basically tells Samuel, Saul had sinned against God and had sacrificed ahead of time he wasn't supposed to, and God told Samuel, hey, he's no longer king. I'm going to send you to anoint a new king. Go to Jesse. So he goes to Jesse, and he ha Jesse has all these sons, and they're lined up. And God says, pick a king from here. And he goes to the first one. And he's this tall, dark, and handsome man. He's really smart, really clever. Everyone loves him. Samuel thinks, surely this is the king. But God tells him, no, this isn't the king. He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And what he was telling Simon, he wasn't telling Simon, hey, Simon, look at the heart. Like, stop looking at his outward appearance. Look at the heart. Because Simon can't see his heart, can he? Like, can you see someone's heart? We, we see the evidence of their heart and the outward appearance, but ultimately only God can see the heart. He wasn't telling Samuel, hey, look at something else. He was just telling Samuel the reality, saying, you can't see what you need to see to pick a king, but I can because I see the heart. Um, that's why when Jesus is uh, teaching the parables, how many of you have heard the parable of the wheat and the tares? Anybody? So we have this, this master of this, this and, he, and, he, and he, his servants go out, and he, they sow this seed into his field, this seed time. They sow the seed into the field. And then his enemy goes around at midnight, and he sows tares. And tares is this weed that looks like wheat. And you can't tell it's not wheat until it's fully grown and starts to bear fruit, and it bears a poisonous fruit. Um, and so, and so the, the servants run to him and says, Master, your, your enemy has sown tares in your field. What do you want us to do? Do you want to rip the tares up? And the master says, No, because in ripping some of the tares up, you might whip the, rip the wheat up as well. So what I want you to do is just nourish it, water it, Treat it like wheat, and then when I come at the harvest, I'll separate it out. That's the calling for the church. 
just want to say, um, for our church, my job, Andrew's job, Mike Collins, Jeff Fields, your elders, our job is not to go around and look at each one of you and say, are you a Christian or not? Do you really know Jesus or not? The parable says that some of you won't. Some of you in this church are tares. Some of you are, are, are weeds and not wheat. But that's not our job because I can't see your heart. It might be that I call you out firmly like Peter, and then you actually are a young Christian that's just figuring things out, and, and that I send you away from the Lord. The job of the church is to nourish, to water, to cherish, to include all of you, and then hope and pray that all of us will have a sincere and firm faith to the end. And then when we see a parent sin like Peter did, then we call it out. There's something else. We can't see other people's hearts, but there's something else we can't see. Um, in parenting, uh, you read a lot of books, you hear a lot of advice, right? And one of the big pieces of advice I've gotten from people is that when I'm disciplining my children, when they do something wrong, I'm supposed to ask them why, right? Has anyone ever tried that as a parent? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll be talking with Anne. I'll be like, so why did you snatch that from your sister? And what is her response? Two things. I don't know, and because I wanted it, Right? Like, why did you pinch your sister? Because I wanted to. Why did you just like, and, and, and most of the response from me is, I don't know. And that's the reality too. Like, I don't know my heart either. I don't know why I do what I do. I don't know, like, ultimately, I know some of the reasons, but deep down, I don't know why I'm standing up here preaching to you. I don't know why you're sitting there listening. You don't either. Like, ultimately, only God knows our heart. We don't know the deep down motivation of our heart, right? And I don't care how self-aware you are, okay? Some of you are like, well, I've been to counseling, right? I know my heart. Right? I'm very self-aware, I've done all the things, I know my Enneagram number and all that, like I know myself. No, you don't, right? You have no idea what your heart is. Just think back to you five years ago and the mistakes and the silly things you were doing. Like you had no idea who you were then, and guess what? You don't know who you are now either. So therefore, what God does is he gives us heart-exposing moments in our life, and this is the next stage of the story. He gives us heart-exposing events, and this is what we see in Simon. He has this heart-exposing event in his life. And for him, it was temptation. It was this temptation to this power. And, and what, what happened here is when, when Peter and John laid their hands on this new church, they received the Holy Spirit. And most likely, it looked like it did in Acts 2, where they were speaking in tongues, maybe prophesying, miracles were happening. And Simon is like, I want that, right? But he didn't say, I want that power within me. He said, I want the power to influence. I want the power to lay my hands on these people. He's not humbly saying, God, give me your power. He's saying, give me your influence. And his heart is exposed, and he has no idea. He doesn't know what he just said. He doesn't know what it just revealed about the inward motivation of his heart. For him, it was temptation, but God can use anything in a heart-exposing event. Think about your own life. God uses suffering a lot. He uses exhaustion. He uses the word. He uses prayer. He uses your family. He uses loneliness. He uses other believers. He uses all sorts of things in your life to expose your heart and lay it bare in front of you and in front of other people because you can't see your own heart. We don't have an x-ray machine that sees that. So the intent of Simon's heart was exposed. And what did the heart-exposing surgery find? Where there should have been a love for God and his kingdom, there was a love for self. There was a love for influence. There was a love for power. That was the, that was the taproot of Simon's motiva motivation that got revealed. His old love of influence that he thought he had killed is rearing its head back up again in his heart. Listen, Scripture is filled with heart-exposing moments. Pretty much every character of Scripture that we read about has a heart-exposing moment that God graciously shows us in Scripture. Even back to the beginning, you have Cain and Abel. And Cain has a heart-exposing moment when he brings an inferior sacrifice and God rejects it. Yet his brother Abel brings a good sacrifice. 
What was Cain's problem? He loved being the best. He loved being the top, and he couldn't bear to see his brother bringing a better sacrifice than him. So what did he do? He killed his brother, right? Demas, read about Demas, who was with Paul on his missionary journeys, and then he fell away from the faith because of his love for the world. We have Peter, who denied Christ to a little girl. It was because he feared what would happen to him. He loved the approval of man. We have uh, Mark, who was with Paul on his missionary journey, and then he leaves. He hitches out of town. When Paul gets thrown in prison, Mark says, "Uh uh-uh, and he goes back home. He has a love for comfort and a fear of pain. We have David, King David, who committed adultery and then killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He had a love for pleasure and a love for hiding his sin. We had Judas, who betrayed Christ, and John tells us that Judas had a love of money. So the love of money, he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. We have King Saul, and King Saul took the sacrifice into his own hands. He had a love for control. He didn't want to wait on Samuel and wait on God, so he took things into his own hands to move forward. And we have Jonah, who refused to preach the gospel to Nineveh. Why? Because he was filled with vengeance at the Ninevites. Because what they had done to his people, he refused to forgive. He had a love for unforgiveness and a love for bitterness in his heart, and he refused to forgive the Ninevites. Question for us is, what is it for you? When you have heart-exposing events, what is, what, it, what is the thing that's exposed? What is the love that's exposed usually? What is the fear that's exposed? What is the insecurity that comes up? For a lot of us, it's the same thing over and over and over again, just like Simon. Those same things rear their head. What is it for you? See, the kingdom of God is his rule and reign in what? Hearts of his people. The kingdom of God is is not his physical reign here. It's his rule and reign in the hearts of his people. And how do I know when my heart has gone wayward? How do I know when the taproot of my motivation has gotten off? It's when he is no longer reigning and ruling in my heart. When someone or something else has usurped his authority and shoved him off the throne. Y'all with me on that? In our heart, who is reigning and ruling? And often we are the shovers, right? We're the ones that shove, but we don't shove him off with our two hands, right? Usually that doesn't look in your life like, God, get out of here. Like, I don't believe in you anymore. I don't want you as part of my life. I hate you. Get off the throne of my heart. What it looks like is we set something else there on our heart. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's money. We set something else on our heart, and then we set something else on our heart, and then we begin to move those things to the center. And indirectly, as we begin to move those things in our lives to the center, what happens to Christ? We shove him off, right? It's kind of, remember one time, uh, this this actually happens pretty frequently, so not one time. A cup of water on the table, um, two-year-old, and two-year-old is shoving her placemat all around, and she's watching that cup of water, and she shoves the cup of water off the table with her placemat, okay? Rose, why did you do that? I didn't touch it, Right? I didn't shove it off, right? But, but she did shove it off. She shoved the placemat, which shoved the cup, right? And that's what happens in our hearts, is we push things into the middle of our hearts, and in doing so, we, we push Christ off of his throne, and he will not share the throne of our hearts. We can't serve two masters. And so that's what happens in our hearts. And, and how does this happen? We have a good illustration of this in the Samaritans. You look at this village, and you have Simon, right? And the Samaritans, Simon starts doing this magic. And the Samaritans, they catch his eye, or he catches their eye. Like, ooh, that's, that's cool. And then they start paying attention to him. So he just, doesn't just catch their eye once, but, but he's, they start paying attention. Ooh, what's he going to do next? I wonder, I wonder what he's going to do. He looks pretty powerful. Maybe he is great. And then they start following him next. They're not just paying attention to him. They're following him around. They're wondering. They want to be like him. They want to act like him. They want to live like him. They want his power. And then pretty soon, he is, he is influencing their lives. They are under the sway of his hand, right? That's what happens in our lives. 
things in our life, they begin to catch our eye. Ooh, I'd like that. I'd like that, that, that bank account. I'd like that job. I'd, I'd like that type of family. I'd like that type of marriage. And, and, the, and then we start to pay attention to it in others. Maybe you follow them on Instagram or, or Twitter or whatever it is these days. I don't have any of them. Maybe you start following them, and, and then you start mending your life. You start following them. You start acting like them. You don't even realize what you're doing, and then pretty soon you are under the sway and under the influence of another God, of another idol in your life, and Christ is no longer ruling and reigning in your heart. And here's the thing. Christ doesn't and never have come busting his way back in, okay? He does not besiege your heart. He does not besiege your throne and try to take back over. He knocks. He knocks and he invites. He says, I'm here. I'm willing to come back in if you'll let me. He invites us to welcome him back into the throne of our lives. And this, and this is the crucial moment. How do we respond to his invitation, okay? So we're all going to have wayward hearts, Okay? And, and some of it might be like it was in Simon, a heart that never knew Christ. Some of it might have a heart that loves Christ, but you begin to get wayward. Your motivation gets off. Christ invites you back. What do you do in this moment? So this is the third movement of this passage is the remedy of repentance. The remedy of repentance. So the x-ray happened, okay? The x-ray happened through this temptation, and it revealed a heart underneath that was in love with influence. And then the diagnosis happens, right? The diagnosis is a heart that has replaced the love of God for a love of influence. What is the remedy? In Acts 8.22, Peter says, repent, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord. The solution for the wayward heart is always repentance. Repent. And that word repentance, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, is metanoia. And metanoia is meta change, noia is mind. So repentance is to change your mind. And, and it's a change of mind that then goes to a change in life that results in a change in heart. Because you can't change your heart, okay? I don't care how much you try, you, you can't reach into your heart and, and rearrange your motivation, right? You can't do it. I don't know if you've ever tried. I have. You find some, some love for something in your heart, and you're like, I, I would rather love Jesus. Let me just reach in there and, and change that up, right? We can't do that. What we do is we change our mind about the thing. And then it changes our will, and then it changes our hearts. You see it in Peter as he changes his mind, and he decides that it is better to, to, to own Christ and die than it is to deny Christ and live. He changed his mind, and then it changed his life. And you see P Peter 10 years later hanging upside down on a cross with Jesus. He's no longer hiding in the name of Christ. You see it in Mark. Mark ends up, he runs away from Paul, but he ends up back in, back in missions again. He decides, he makes a decision in his mind that it is better to be uncomfortable and in pain and die for Christ than it is to live in comfort on his own couch. You see it in Jonah. Jonah runs back to Nineveh. He decides that it is better to forgive and show mercy than it is to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in his heart. It's a decision of his mind. You see it in David. David decides, you see it in Psalm 51, Psalm 32. He decides in his mind it is better to, to love God in boredom and in, and in the desert than it is to fill myself with pleasure, right? These are decisions in our mind. And repentance is not just the opening act of the Christian life, is it? It's the daily practice of the Christian. And if you are not daily repenting, seeing sin in your life, laying it before the Lord, changing your mind about it, walking after him again and again and again, then your heart, the taproot of your heart is going to be off. And you're going to be living for another God that's not Christ. True, true repentance flows from a realization of sin and not consequences. Did Simon repent? No, he didn't. Look at verse um, 24. What's his prayer? He says, Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord. 
that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So basically what he says is pray for me that I might not experience the consequences of my actions. So what is true repentance? True repentance is not a brokenness that results of the fact that I got discovered, found out, and I have consequences now. True repentance is a result of the realization of sin. When I see I'm a sinner, and sin is not just the bad things that happen after I sin. Sin is that I've offended God, that I've replaced him on my throne, that I've run after other things, and that is the offense, and that is repentance, is when I say I'm broken because of that. And that's not what we see in Simon. True repentance flows from a realization of sin. The question for us, how have you responded to the heart-exposing moments in your life over the past month? Think. What, what heart-exposing moments, what trials have you experienced, what exhaustions have you had, what times in the Word have revealed your heart, what other people have called you out, what, what, what moments have you had, and how have you responded? Have you tried to save face and hide, or have you laid yourself bare and said, I, I am a broken sinner. God, would you restore me to yourself? I changed my mind about that thing. I changed my mind about that love. I changed my mind about my future. I changed my mind about my family, about my finances, about my job. And I want to live under your reign and rule in my life. What have you done? Well, Cain, he got defensive and he justified himself in front of the Lord. Am I my brother's keeper? He, he, he got defensive when he was faced with a heart exposing event. Demas ran harder after the world rather than returning to the Lord. Judas got depressed and he ran away from God and eventually he hung himself. Simon tried to save face and avoid the consequences of his sin with his prayer. And Saul went on pretending like everything was all right as the ruling king of Israel, even though he had rejected God and turned away from him. What about you? Do you get defensive like Cain? Right? Do you keep on loving the world like Demas? Do you get depressed and despair like Judas? Do you try to save face and avoid consequences like Simon? Do you live in denial like Saul? What do you do when you're faced with your sin? Or... Do you dive into the water and swim with all you've got back to the Lord like Peter did? Do you face your fears and get back to the work of the ministry like Mark? Do you cry out to the Lord for forgiveness and restoration like David? Do you seek to walk in mercy and forgiveness where there once was bitterness and unforgiveness like Jonah? Being a true Christian does not mean not having a wayward heart. It doesn't mean not sinning. It doesn't mean not having idols that get exposed in our lives. It doesn't mean not wandering from the Lord. Being a true Christian means coming back to him again and again and again and again. With all that you have, when you're exposed, you run towards the Lord and not away from him. Saving faith means that when God exposes our hearts, we will always respond in repentance and faith. We'll draw near to God in prayer rather than continuing in our own way. So the life of faith is not a life of sinless perfectionism, but of humble repentance. A life that resubmits again and again and again to the rule and reign of Christ in our hearts. A heart that continues to, to put the magnificence of Christ back on the throne when it's come off. Again and again, we ask him, come back in. I accept your invitation. Would you please come? Be magnified in my life. Would you please come and reign and rule in me again? A heart that humbly turns to God's grace. So I'm going to conclude with this. Um, Psalm 139 um, this is a, a prayer um, that... Um, it's prayed. It's a heart-searching prayer. At the very end of it, um, maybe write this passage down. One, Psalm 139, verse 23. It's a prayer that David prayed. And just think about David, a man who knew deep sin. He knew what it was like to let God off the heart of his life, throne of his life. He says this, Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God. Search me and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts 
and see if there is any grievous, or you could say wayward way within me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Will you ask the Lord this week, this afternoon, tonight, search my heart, know me, find if there's any grievous way in me, expose it before me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Will you ask him to do that? Hebrews 4, 12, this is another good one to meditate on um, as you're looking at your heart. It says this, the word of God, and the word of God is both his scripture and it's Christ himself. The word of God is living and active. He's sharper than any two-edged sword. He pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. He discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God already knows your heart. God already knows my heart. He knows why I'm here. He knows why I do what I do. He knows why you do what you do. Will you ask him? Will you ask him to reveal it to you? And then will you ask him for the grace to repent? The grace to magnify Christ. The grace to lay down your idols and your other loves. And put him back in ruling and reigning in your heart. Would you stand with me? And we're going to pray together before we sing. Christ, we love you. We want to love you more. We worship you. We want to worship you more. We want you to be magnified in our hearts and our lives. We want want your glory to ring forth in our hearts, God. I I confess that I so often, I I shove things onto the throne of my heart and I shove you off into doing them. God, I pray that you would reveal those moments to us in your grace, that we would see them, that you would bring us heart-exposing events, and that you would, in your grace, lead us to repentance. Lead us back to you. Let us be like Peter, who runs to you, swims to you with all he has. Let us be, God, let us be like Mark, who gets back into ministry. Let us be um, like your people who've run to you again and again and again in repentance. God, give us clean hands and a pure heart. We love you. Christ, we love you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.